morning we're going to learn how we should suffer. Um, Peter's made it pretty clear up to this point that if you're a believer, if you're born again, if you are following Christ, you're living in obedience to all that Christ commands rather than going along with the world, then you're going to experience suffering. And that's seen throughout Scripture, not just in his letters. Um, We live in a fallen world where everything and everybody is affected by uh, disease, deadly disease, broken relationships, all this, the consequences of the fall. And if you're living boldly for Christ, if you're standing for truth against this increasing tide of lies and opposition to God's created order, you're going to suffer. And the readers of 1 Peter were experiencing persecution, marginalization, loss of status, loss of reputation, mockery, slander, loss of their livelihood, even imprisonment, and possibly martyrdom for their faith in Christ. And Peter's writing to give them hope and instructions on how to live in the midst of that suffering. Believers will suffer. Christ suffered on our behalf, and we are to follow his example in suffering, and in fact, we have been called to suffer. It's actually a privilege and a grace to suffer because we follow Christ. Many of the trials that Peter's readers were dealing with are things that we are beginning to experience increasingly here in the United States in what used to be characterized as a Christian nation. I don't know if that was ever actually accurate, but that description of the U.S. is certainly a thing of the past. Our world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians It is becoming increasingly hostile to a biblical worldview, increasingly hostile to truth. And because of that, Peter's letter, his encouragement, his instructions, his warnings are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. The fact is the world has always been hostile to the truth. It's always been hostile to the gospel. It's always been hostile to those who faithfully follow Christ. So, let's see what Peter has to say today in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, about how we should suffer. Verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Before we get into the text here, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning to, again, learn from your word. Pray that you would open our eyes to the truths that you would impart to us, keep us from error as we, as we study, and apply the word to our hearts to transform us into Christ-likeness and to equip us for the suffering that is sure to come in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've organized the notes around four main points, or four main questions. What should we think? Or how should we think? How should we live? How should we love? And how should we serve in light of suffering? And guiding all of those questions is the knowledge that Peter reminds his readers of in verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand. It's kind of like the caricature of the bearded guy in the robe walking up and down the sidewalk with a scrawled sign that says, the end is near. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? The end is near. Ever since Christ ascended, his return to establish his kingdom on earth has been imminent. It's been near, and it's nearer now than it ever was, nearer now than it was 2,000 years ago. So the bearded guy with the sign has it right. The end is near, and all believers should be aware of that, should be hoping for that, looking forward to that, and praying for the end of all things, for Christ's glorious return. Now let's look at what Peter says in verse 1 about how we should think. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This phrase Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh is referring back to the previous section in chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now that, of course, is a summary of the gospel. Christ suffered death on the cross, the sinless one, taking our sins upon himself, suffering the full, horrible, and absolutely just wrath of God, pouring out judgment against that sin that was our sin, suffering to the point of death, and then rising from the dead in victory over sin and death, which secured our justification, our redemption, our forgiveness, restoration to a right relationship with God. Peter says we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. So what was Christ's way of thinking regarding his suffering? 
And what was Christ's way of thinking in general? Well, regarding his suffering on the cross, the best summary of his thinking and our example of how to think is in Hebrews 12 too, where the writer tells us, as we run the endurance race of faith, that's the life that we are living now, with its trials and suffering, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I've explained this before, but Jesus considered his suffering, the shame heaped on him and his death on the cross, of little consequence. That's what it means to say that he despised the shame. He thought little of it in view of the joy and glory that he would have as a result of that suffering. He thought little of it. He was raised in glory, redeeming the elect, and now he's seated at the right hand of God, enthroned in power, majesty, and glory. The reward that he received far outweighed any suffering that he would experience in the process. That was also Peter's encouragement, if you remember, to believers in the first chapter. You may be suffering, but if you endure in faith to the end, it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ for you and then ultimately for Christ. And that was also Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the way of thinking we are to arm ourselves with in the midst of suffering, following Christ's example, looking beyond the momentary affliction, the momentary suffering, because it's all just a moment. It's all momentary in light of eternity. So we, we look to the reward that will result from suffering, the reward that will far outweigh the hardship, the pain, and the suffering in whatever form it takes. Now that's certainly part of how we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. But Christ also lived his earthly life, his incarnation, with a singular focus, a singular way of thinking, and that focus, that way of thinking was doing His Father's will, living in obedience to all of God's moral and ethical requirements. He came to live a sinless life, fulfilling all of the requirements of the law in our place, because we certainly couldn't do it. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, but He met those temptations without ever giving in without any failure, without ever failing to obey, completely without sin, he led a holy life. And that singular focus on doing his Father's will, that was also what led to much of, if not all of his suffering. Yet he obeyed. He never sinned. And what was his way of thinking about sin, aside from the fact that it would be in opposition to the will of God? What was his attitude towards sin? 
I think the best summary of that also is in his own words, Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members that, than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus understood how evil, how wicked, how destructive sin is, and he recommends the most drastic measures to combat sin, even though he uses hyperbole to emphasize the seriousness of sin. But that should also be the thinking that we arm ourselves with. We will obey God. We will walk in obedience to all that Christ commands. When we're met with temptation, we will not give in. We will not sin. We will do as Peter exhorts believers in chapter 1, verse 15 to do. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We should take sin seriously and pursue holiness. That's how we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. First of all, looking beyond the suffering to the promised reward, which will be far greater than any present suffering that we experience. We are to be fully committed to living for God's will and not our own, living in obedience to all that He commands, resisting temptation to sin, and instead always pursuing holiness in all of our conduct. That's how we're to arm ourselves in thinking like Christ. And I think it's important to pay attention to that phrase, arm yourselves. To arm yourselves has military connotations, so I like it. Arms or armament are the weapons of war. And 2,000 years ago, the weapons of war were swords, spears, bows and arrows, shields. Today, they would be assault rifles, machine guns, hand grenades, rockets, and bombs. And you don't take up arms unless you need to defend yourself. You don't take up arms unless you're headed into a fight. You don't take up arms unless you're going into battle, unless you are going into war. And throughout Scripture, the Christian life is described in terms of warfare. To follow Christ will involve an unrelenting, lifelong war against our own flesh, our residual sin nature, a lifelong war against the world system which is under the power of Satan and the satanic forces of darkness. And that was the Apostle Paul's point in Ephesians 6 where he instructs believers to put on the whole armor of God because we're doing battle against the schemes of the devil, spiritual forces of evil. And that war is real. It's real. It's destructive. And it's deadly. I think 
far too many of us forget this. Maybe we don't take the reality of this spiritual warfare against sin and Satan seriously. We may think it's not that big of a deal. We live in a modern world. I know some of us are just naive. We're not aware of just how dangerous and deadly the war can be. Or maybe we're like some people in some of the wars that the U.S. have been involved in, people sitting back home by the fire while a war is raging on the other side of the world. Well, that doesn't really concern me. It doesn't affect me. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. But all those ways of thinking are wrong. And if any of those describe you, you need to change your way of thinking. The war is real. The war is a big deal. And the war directly affects each one of us. And if we're not taking it seriously, if we're not taking up arms and going to war every day with the same thinking as Jesus, it will have terrible destructive effects on us. If we're true believers, we're not going to lose our salvation, okay? But it can destroy our witness. It can certainly ruin or limit our effectiveness in ministry. It can impact our health and our relationships. It can ruin marriages. It can cause others to stumble and fall into sin. It can split and destroy local church bodies. And it can result in our Father disciplining us away from sin. And that discipline can be very painful and terrifying. And sin always negatively impacts our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes, in fact, very often when we repent and we return to obedience, God is gracious. God always graciously forgives us, restores our fellowship with Him, and He causes all things to work for good, but we may still have to live with the destructive consequences of our sin in this world. Marriages may never be reconciled. Church bodies may never reunify. You may not get out of prison. And we suffer those consequences as a result of our failure to go to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you think... If you think that you can toy with sin, if you think that you can walk a fine line between freedom and sin, if you think you can expose yourself to the lies, the attacks on truth, the attacks on God's created order coming out of Hollywood like attacks on male leadership in the home and in the church, or lies about gender and the sin of homosexuality, or the most pervasive lie about sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage. 
If you continually expose yourself to those lies, the constant attacks coming from Hollywood, social media, coming from society in general, the college and university system, all of those attacks on biblical truth, if you think you can continually expose yourself to any and all of those lies and deception and not be influenced, not be led astray, not have your thinking compromised, well then, Satan's schemes are succeeding, and you are in grave danger of losing the battle. But if you go to war, if you arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus, you will be victorious in your war against sin. You will be able to resist the assaults from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you will be able to endure the suffering that will come as a result of following Christ. And that's the point of the last part of the first verse where Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's not saying that believers will never sin again or that will be sinless because that won't happen until we reach heaven. What he means is that the believer who arms himself with the same way of thinking as Jesus in regards to sin and suffering, that believer will make a decisive break with the sin patterns that characterize their life before faith in Christ, before trusting Christ. That's how we are to live. Believers who willingly commit themselves to suffer for the sake of Christ, willingly suffering mocking scorn and persecution for their faith, they demonstrate that they have triumphed over sin and are now following Christ. That's what characterizes their lives. The fact that a believer suffers for their faith in Christ is evidence of faith in Christ and obedience to Christ. And then Peter goes on to develop that thought in verse 2. The true believer has broken with the old sin patterns. He's now following Christ. And verse 2 says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Believers should be living to do God's will and not their own, dying to self, following Christ. They live to walk in obedience, to pursue holiness, and no longer to live in order to fulfill their sinful, lustful desires and passions of the flesh. And we do that until Christ returns or He takes us home through our physical death. That's what Peter means by the rest of the time in the flesh this earthly life. And then Peter continues to hammer the point that believers have broken with their former former sinful way of living in verses 3 through 4. Basically, he says that the time you spent as an unbeliever, the years you lived a life that was characterized by indulging your sinful desires, that was more than enough. You got your full of sin. So, Don't go back there. Don't ever go back to that sinful 
way of life, that sinful lifestyle. Don't be the dog returning to lick up its own vomit. That's not who you are any longer. And then he, he rattles off a list of sinful behaviors that the Gentiles or unbelievers are guilty of and that presumably his readers were guilty of prior to faith. It's also safe to say that many of us, including myself, have been guilty of these sins before following Christ. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The word sensuality and passions refers primarily to unrestrained sexual sin, but it could describe in general just giving in to any fleshly desire or indulgence taken to excess like gluttony. One commentator describes it as an inordinate indulgence of appetites to the extent of violating a sense of public decency, shameless conduct, and moral impurity. And orgies that it speaks about were actually festivals or religious gatherings to honor a pagan god, especially Bacchus, and these festivals involved drinking to excess that would end up in sexual sin or parading through the streets just doing whatever they felt like in their drunken state. That was 2,000 years ago, but it sounds a lot like any Friday or Saturday night in L.A., San Francisco, or New York. In fact, it sounds a lot like any Friday or Saturday night here in Bakersfield. I mean, we've come a long way in the last 2,000 years, haven't we? The list uh, that he goes through here reminds me of some of the anthems of the late 60s, you know, on the, uh, the beginning of or the culmination of the sexual revolution. Those anthems were sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Or if it feels good, do it. And party hardy. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. The sinful lifestyle of unbelievers back then and in the 21st century are almost identical. The only difference really might be in the form of sinful idolatry. Back then, it took the form of worshiping the various false gods of Greece and Rome, Zeus, Hermes, Artemis, Bacchus, etc. Today, our false gods are primarily ourselves or anything that we worship or devote our time, energy, and resources to other than the one true God, whether that's work, entertainment, or sports. And Peter reminds his readers that the fact that they are no longer participating in the wild and debauched living that was characteristic of life in Asia Minor at that time and was part of their actual social and religious fabric. Their break with that sinful lifestyle is the cause of the persecution that they are experiencing. The Gentile unbelievers were surprised that believers wouldn't participate in what were considered normal cultural activities, drunkenness and orgies. And they would malign, they would slander, criticize, defame, mock, and ridicule Christians 
for their refusal to go along with the crowd, to do what the rest of society was doing. And in fact, in mocking and verbally abusing those believers, they were essentially mocking and maligning the God that they were worshiping and living in obedience to. They were mocking and maligning God. Now, this can be the experience of believers today as well. Particularly if the life that you lived prior to following Christ was characterized by that kind of debauched, sinful immorality that's described here and also pictures our society today. If you were living with that partying, carousing, drinking, sexually immoral, and indulgent, fleshly lifestyle, when you broke with that, when you turn from your drinking buddies or your partying crowd, you turn from that sinful life to follow Christ, you may have experienced the same kind of mocking and maligning from the crowd that you ran with. Because unbelievers don't want you to do what's right. And they'll often put social pressure on believers to continue to join them in their debauched lifestyle and mock you if you don't. If you haven't experienced that, you're fortunate. But Christians in general are mocked. Christians in general are maligned and despised for our pursuit of holiness and obedience to God's moral and ethical standards. We're mocked and criticized as holier than now. Mocked and criticized as self-righteous do-gooders or puritanical goody-two-shoes. I don't know what the two-shoes means, but one of the things that I've heard. Sinful society is constantly putting on pressure, putting pressure on believers to give in, to come back to that sinful lifestyle, to go along with everybody else, to go along with where the fun really is. Why do you want to live that boring, unsatisfying, oppressive Christian life when you can come back here and have fun? That's a lie. Peter then encourages believers by pointing them to the end of time, the final judgment when the living and the dead will stand before God and be held to account for everything done in the course of their lives. They will be judged for their sin and for their persecution of believers. So, be encouraged, endure in the faith, Don't go along with the sinful crowd just to avoid trouble and persecution because in the end, you will be vindicated and those responsible for your suffering will be judged and condemned. Justice will be done. And then, in verse 6, Peter, speaking about people who became believers and have since died, he's encouraging his readers who were likely also being ridiculed because from the unbeliever's viewpoint, there didn't appear to be any advantage to being a Christian. You give up indulging your sinful desires, and yet you die anyway. You die just like we do, and we're having fun. 
He died just like unbelievers. Of course, that's not the whole picture, and that's Peter's point. Believers do die physically because of the curse, judgment on sin, but believers will be raised from the dead to eternal life and glory just as Jesus was resurrected and glorified. Then, in verse 7, like verses 5 and 6, he reminds believers that the end is near. History is coming to a close. Things will not go on as they are indefinitely. Jesus is returning. Final judgment is coming. Creation will be cleansed with fire, and the new heaven and earth will be established. Jesus will reign on earth. God will be with his people. And that knowledge should motivate believers to think soberly about the time that's left. Even though no specific date has been set for the end of all things, the end is imminent. It's near. So believers should be sober and disciplined in their prayers entreating God to act, to accomplish His will in the remaining time. And the realization that time is coming to a close should motivate believers to be even more dependent on the Lord, and that dependence is demonstrated through a disciplined and focused prayer life. The nearness of the end should also provoke believers to love one another as we are increasingly marginalized and separated from society, as we are increasingly mocked and in some cases persecuted, we need, we need to stick together. We need to care for one another. And in verse 8, Peter actually commands believers to one another, to love one another earnestly and fervently. And that love is, of course, biblical love, which is a sacrificial, conscious, and committed determination <clears throat> to do good to others, to seek their good above our own. And love is absolutely central to the Christian life. It's of the highest priority, and that's revealed throughout Scripture. God is love. We love because He first loved us, if we don't love, we don't know God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and they'll know we're Christians by our love for one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love one another fervently. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to disregard sin or think lightly of sin. Sin is wicked and it's evil. It's what Christ died for. But it also doesn't mean that we need to avoid confronting one another on occasion. On occasion, we do need to rebuke one another and call one another to repentance over sin. But the point is, in love covering a multitude of sins, the point is 
we, we don't need to go around looking for and exposing every single sin that our brothers and sisters are guilty of. Because that would be soul-crushing, defeating, and divisive. We are not the Holy Spirit. We need to cover over most sins within the body, particularly those offenses that are against us personally. Forgive, even when forgiveness is not sought, and continue to love and do good to our brothers and sisters, trusting the Holy Spirit to work conviction and transformation in the believer's life. And then verse 9 is also related to loving one another, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And Peter seems to have an understanding <clears throat> that generously opening one's home for meals and fellowship within the body of Christ, that can be abused, taken advantage of. And it can become tiresome and possibly resented. So Peter is just encouraging believers in the same line of thinking as loving one another uh, to continue to extend hospitality gladly and without giving into the temptation to do so with reservation or resentment. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're told how we are to serve. <clears throat> Peter makes the point that every believer has received a gift from God, and that certainly refers to spiritual gifts. And those gifts are not for the benefit of the one who God has given the gift to, but rather it's for the benefit of others within the body of Christ. And if you don't think that you have a spiritual gift, if you are a believer and you don't think that you have a spiritual gift, you need to change your thinking again. Everybody that is a true believer that is following Christ has been given a spiritual gift. You might not know what it is, but one way to figure out what your spiritual gift is, whether that's serving or teaching, is to jump in and start doing stuff in the church. And your gifts will become evident to others, if not to you. So we've all been granted a spiritual gift and we are merely stewards of those gifts. In other words, the gift doesn't actually belong to us. It belongs to God. But as stewards, <clears throat> we use that gift or manage it on behalf of God for the benefit of others. And Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Manifestation of the Spirit is referring to spiritual gifts. So Paul also tells us in Ephesians 4 that we use our gifts and we minister to one another within the body of Christ with those gifts so that we will reach full maturity in Christ, so that we will become Christ-like. Peter then reminds his readers and us that in using the gifts God has given us, whether those gifts uh, our gifts of preaching, teaching, or service in whatever form that might take. But all of those gifts are empowered by God's grace. It's not our own strength. It's not our own ability. It all comes from God working in us and through us for His purposes. And as a result, God is glorified. He gets the credit 
He gets the glory for whatever good we're able to accomplish in the use of the gifts that he has given us. And that's ultimately what it's all about. It is all about bringing glory to God. That's ultimately what we are to be about in the midst of suffering and in life in general. How we think, how we live our lives, how we love, and how we serve, we do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In the last lines of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement that Peter gives us. In the midst of suffering, help us to think like Christ. Help us to pursue holiness. Help us to look beyond the suffering to the eternal reward. Help us to live our lives for your will and not our own, leaving sinful lifestyle behind and pursuing holiness. Help us to love each other fervently passionately and help us to serve, serve in order to glorify you using the gifts that you've given us as good stewards for your purposes. And just pray that all that we do, Lord, would truly glorify and honor you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.